Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Hi. Uh, gosh, I love Texas. I tell you, I think you guys are, uh, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your hospitality. Thank you for thinking about a wretch like me. Um, every time I pack my suitcase, I think, ain't this something? <laughs> <laughs> and I'll tell you why it's so amazing um, that I would be asked to do anything. Um, and that's uh, because where where I came from, um, I always think a wretch like me, a wretch like me. Um, I crawled, my father um, dropped me off at a homeless shelter that had a non-medical detox center in it um, on March the 6th, 2010. He had picked me up off a street corner and he had taken me there and he said, Amy, please let those women help you, honey, you're going to die. And I was uh, 39 years old. I weighed about 115 pounds. I'm a hundred and a lot more <laughs> now. <laughs> and I was dying. I, I was dying of untreated alcoholism. And um, I just, I love this program. There was no hope for me. You know, I was the girl they had written off. It just, there's no way back from how far down the scale I had gone. You know, um, we talk about the music of Alcoholics Anonymous. We talk about the tremendous um, spirit that lives among us. We talk about um, this God, right, this higher power, this thing um, that pulls us off the scrap heap of life. You know, when they gave me this book in 2010, I started reading it, and I just would think, how did they know? How did they know that I drink to blot out the intolerable consciousness of my existence? That I can't stand me, and I can't stand you, and I need, like Bill says on page six of Bill's story, two bottles of gin and oblivion. That's where I need to be all the time. Because if I am conscious of the intolerable conditions in which I'm living, then I become both suicidal and homicidal. You know, alcoholism, it is just, it's an insidious foe. You know, I didn't uh, get up on in fourth grade and say, you know, on career day, when I grow up, I'm hoping if things go well, you know, by the time I'm 39, I'm in a hopeless state of mind and body and uh, living on the streets. You know, this was not the goal. This is, this is poor management, right? I had a, I love what was right in the beginning. I needed a new manager. Like whoever's running your life, you should beat them up and fire them. Done a terrible job. Um, so when I got to you, um, I was in this beautiful place of surrender. You know, I had that beautiful gift of desperation. 
I listened as only the dying can to everything you said. You know, everything in this book, I would read it. I was that girl in treatment uh, that knew the book, you know, and they would say, hey, Amy, what page is boiled out? I'm like, yeah, fourth line down in the middle. You know, um, because you told me that this book had the answers to all my problems. I would open it up and read, there is a solution, and tears would fall from my eyes and stain the pages. I was dying when I got here. And you, this flimsy read, right? This flimsy read turned out to be this big, powerful, amazing God that was interested in the life of a wretch like me. And I am blown away by that. I am continue to be blown away by that every, every day. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I, you smell good. You're nice. You're friendly. These are things I enjoy. Um, yeah, it's so different than, you know, what was going on before. Um, but like I said, you know, that wasn't the beginning. Was, you know, I wasn't born with a beer in my hand. Uh, but I was born into a, a family of people trying to survive. You know, my mom uh, married my dad to an escape, an alcoholic home. My grandfather was a uh, binge drinker and a rager. So my mom's job on Saturday, I don't know what's happening here. My, maybe my eyeball's coming out. I don't know. Uh, oh, I'll get a new one. Um my mom's job on Saturday was to make sure there was a window lock unlocked in every room in case my grandfather got you in that room. And they would literally jump out the windows to escape my grandfather. And then my aunts and my uncle and my mom would run and hide and they would meet in the ditch behind my grandmother's house. And they would lay in this ditch and watch through the windows as my grandfather raged. And my grandmother would go to return inside and they would grab her ankles and her arms and beg her the only way children can, please don't go back inside. Mom, he'll kill you. And my grandma, with untreated household of untreated alcoholism, would say, I have to go back in or he'll burn the house down. And so my grandma would sacrifice her, always trying to control and manage the alcoholism. Um, so my mom married at 18. She uh, married my father. And there were, you know, my dad was a, ah, such a good looking guy and, uh, funny and charismatic. And guess what he was? One of us. Cause we're good looking and we're funny and we're charismatic and people like us. And, uh, my mom, you know, her picker, man, you know, took her right to him. Uh, and, and we, they were poor and, and, you know, they had me and, um, my dad and I instantly bonded. Um, my dad said that he bonded with me and my mother's when we had a connection that, um, I was so lucky to be his daughter, you know, to have this connection with this father that I adored. Um, but by the time I was six or seven, my dad's alcoholism was affecting the family. And my mom uh, saw these warning signs, and she didn't want me and my sister living in the same conditions that she had been living in. So my mom divorced my dad. Um, but she didn't ask anybody about that. I, there wasn't a family meeting. I wasn't consulted. You know, and although I was seven, I felt like my opinion should, I should have a vote. And, uh, 
And I, my mom didn't speak ill of my dad. So I didn't know that when we were driving around at 2 a.m. and she was saying, is your dad's motorcycle in the parking lot? You know, I didn't put all that together. The marquee said kitten house. And I thought, why is she so mad? Who doesn't like kittens? Like, who is this woman, this angry woman, you know, that I stuck with? Um, but but out, the, the people who love us, they get tired. You know, they get tired. And I just remember my mom was tired all the time. And, and we were probably because we were up at 2 a.m. looking for my dad at the kitten house, you know, but, uh, I, I didn't ha- I didn't know. Nobody said this is alcoholism. We don't call it what it is. I remember at 13 years old, you know, my dad, his alcoholism just took him. And so he, I, he didn't pick us up on weekends. He didn't pay child support, holidays, birthdays, all that was missed. You know, that's the, just the nature of the beast. But I remember I was 13, we were at my grandma's and I was so excited because my dad usually would stop by at Christmas at my grandma's, you know, and I would see him and I yearned for and longed for my father all my life. I was a daddy's girl and, um, and he didn't come and they came and they said, your dad's not coming. He's at Our Lady of Peace, which is a psych hospital in Louisville. And I said, for what? Cause I, you know, I, and they said, his nerves are bad. He was shooting cocaine and drinking Jack Daniels. His nerves were bad. You know, like he was, he'd get paranoid and flush the dope and the dope dealer wants his house. He was nervous. Things were making him nervous, but people, nobody said that. You know, they just said his, his, his nerves, you know, like his nerves, huh? Um, so this is how I grew up just missing this dad. And when I was, you know, a kid, it was, you're just like your dad, you're good in math. And, and then, you know, by the time I'm 14, I'm sneaking out, I'm lying, I've got hot pants, you know, I'm kissing all the boys, I'm doing all the things. Then it was, you're just like your dad. And it meant something different. And I thought you didn't like him and you don't like me. And I thought the world was against me. I just, for no reason, I made this up. I made this up in my head, you know, because I, I have this per- disease of perception and I'm the victim and nobody understands, oh, the forlorn alcoholic, you know, we're just so full of self-pity and, and insanity. And and I got introduced to the drink, you know, in junior high and I thought, this is it. This is it. And I loved what Nancy said because just like her, I was not going to be like him. I was not going to be like him, but we just don't know. Alcoholism is its own, you know, it's an insidious foe. So I start drinking early. I drink as much as I can, as fast as I can, as often as I can. That's how I drink. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. In fact, I'm confused if you don't drink like that. Like, that baffles me a little bit. I'm like, what's with you, you know? Um, and we're not going to hang out very long because I need to be with the people who drink as much as they can, as fast as they can, as long as they can. And they don't talk about what the other guy did the night before. I mean, how rude. Just let that go. Christ, it's a new day. You know, everybody makes mistakes. Um, but my mistakes look like me sleeping with your boyfriend and girls are pretty sensitive about that. And, um, then they want to fight, you know, fight. I was like, now I got to find new friends. I changed high schools four times. We never moved. 
I didn't just, that's not why I changed schools. My stepfather was not in the military. Like none of those things happened. I can't get along with you. And the best I can do when that happens is to go somewhere else. I had this one boyfriend, he used to get so mad because I'd say, I'll come back when you're not mad. Like, I don't really want to fight. You seem angry. I'll go away and you'll calm down and I'll come back. Um, and then, like, once I was married, you know, you go to the bar and I love the way Sheldon always talks about, I'm going to have one, maybe two, no more than three, you know, four at the most. And then it's like, you know, I'm going to be home by eight. I'm going to go home at nine. I'm going to go home at 11. And I would think, well, he's not going to yell any louder at one. So I might as well just <laughs> stay. You know, it's not like you get more trouble past 11. After that, you're kind of maxed out on how loud it's going to get. So I would just stay and shut the bar down. Because when I drink, I have an allergy to alcohol. See, I didn't know that. I didn't know that even though my intention was to pick the kids up from school, that once I took a drink, I was just going to be drinking. Because I, I have this allergy that creates this phenomenon of craving. And I can't stop drinking once I start. Right? But it, it doesn't say... And, and Sheldon... I, everything I know I learned from you so if I say somebody say, and if I don't say they said it they did I just forgot who said it but he say, it doesn't say oh this is a phenomenon of craving it says I've changed my mind and so when I would be at the bar and I was going to pick the kids up from school I didn't know I was reacting to a phenomenon of craving an allergic reaction in response to alcohol in my body I thought I've changed my mind I'm going to have my mom pick them up. I'm going to have the babysitter pick them up. I'm going to let them go to after school care, you know, always buying that extra time to keep drinking. And the problem was when I wasn't drinking, I was thinking about drinking. That's the mental obsession. And see, this happened early. I can look back. I used to play trombone. I ran track. I was a straight A student. You know, I, I did things. And once alcohol was introduced in my life, it became the priority. I didn't want to run track. I went to smoke cigarettes now, you know. I, I wasn't going to be in trombone. They were squares. I needed cooler kids to hang out with because guys in band weren't drinking the way I needed to drink. I immediately started to shift everything in my life, and it centered around alcohol, and I became the party girl. And that's the way it was. Um, I did end up graduating barely by the skin of my teeth. Oh, my God. There's this rule in Kentucky. I don't know if you have it in Texas. I think it's a scam. But anyway, I go into graduation rehearsal, and the principal says, Oh, Miss my maiden name. What are you doing here? And I'm like, well, it's graduation rehearsal. And he's like, yes, for those that are graduating. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he was like, you don't have enough days attendance. I'm like what I passed all the classes and they're like yeah but you have to be here so many days I'm like I wasn't here and passed the classes I feel like there's a special award you should give me like not a, like you know things just my my logic's different than theirs um but anyway my mom fixed it because my mom fixes things for alcoholics you know my mom I don't know I don't ask questions she fixed it who knows what happened my mom can be very intimidating. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I graduated barely. And uh, and then 
I found out I was pregnant right after my senior year of high school. And uh, my daughter, Sarah, was born on March 15th of uh, 1990. And I fell in love with her. I mean, how precious is that? That first cry and they put them on you. And, oh, I was just so in love with this child. And I, I thought, I'll never leave you. I'll never disappoint you. I'm going to be your mom and you're going to be my kid and everything's going to be great except alcoholism. Alcoholism. And suddenly I was leaving her with my mom and not just on Friday night. Mom could keep her till Sunday and the weekend stretched out. And then I'm dropping her off at daycare and I'm trying to day drink, but somebody else can pick her up from daycare. You know, alcoholism, all alcohol always took priority. And I love in page 52 when it talks about the bedevilments, little control of my emotional nature. I'm a crazy girl. Some men love that. They're attracted to it. They're like, oh, she's crazy, you know, and uh, I love it. And then, you know, and then you set one small fire and they're like, oh, <laughs> she's too crazy. No. Anyway, uh, that was me, you know, and so I, I would be way up, I would be way down, I would be in love, I would hate you, I would stab you, I'd start a fire, I'm just nuts, I'm nuts, I'm scary nuts, you know, and I don't think there's anything wrong with it, I think you are making me act like this, right, Jesus, it's just insane. Um, and, and I did this for years and years. Um, when I was 20 years old, I got a job waiting tables because we should all work in a bar. And, um, I love it. It smelled like piss and cigarettes and whiskey. And there were fist fights and knife fights. Like, and I love that stuff. You know, that's my jam, you know? And, uh, so I started dating the bouncer cause I like to fight and he likes to fight and we start beating each other up and, I end up pregnant again, and uh, he leaves, and uh, I start dating his kid brother. Yeah, yeah, I did that. He didn't like his brother, and I didn't like his brother, so I felt like, you know, we had a lot in common. Um, <laughs> that poor kid, that poor kid. Uh, anyway... Um, as Led Zeppelin played throughout the chapel, I looked at him through my veil, and I said, I need a beer. And he said, I know. <laughs> and that, that was what our wedding day. Um, we were married for 10 years. God love him. He's a good man. He's still a good man. And uh, he's the Spain of Amy Spain, uh, Duncan. And uh, I tell you what, I didn't think there was anything bizarre about that. Like, you know, the alcoholic life seems the only normal one. Like I just did not see if you said anything was wrong with that, you were stuck up, you were judgy, you were, you know, and I sought out people who would accept unacceptable behavior. I need to find a place where my unacceptable behavior is acceptable and you can find them. Oh, you can find them. And, and that's where I would hang out. And so we have these two kids. I do want to say I'm from Kentucky. He wasn't my brother, right? It was, it was his brother. So just to be clear, you know, I, I don't know what you guys hear about Kentucky. I don't want any bad rumors starting. It wasn't my brother. 
Um, but uh, we did have children, and that made my daughter, Allie, gave her a sister cousin and a brother cousin later. So that that's kind of weird. But, um, Christ, who knows? Alcoholism. It's just so much fun. Uh, a year into the marriage, he says, um, I'm leaving you. You know, because I'm a rager just like my grandpa. And so when I drink, I, I break the dishes and I start fights and I, I, I'm an idiot, you know, and, uh, he's going to leave. And I called my dad. My dad got sober on my 18th birthday. It's my dad's sobriety date, February 16th, um, of 1989. Uh, when I turned 18, my dad would call me every year on my birthday just for, I mean, I'll talk to him the rest of the year, but he would call on my birthday. And, uh, he called that night about nine o'clock that night. I remember, sitting at home waiting because back then you know we didn't have cell phones phone hung on the wall and my mom was like are you gonna go out with your friends it's your 18th birthday and I said dad hasn't called and um as a little girl I used to think that he would die a John Doe and um nobody would find me and I would lay awake and worry about my dad and how he was because I thought he would die you know in some seedy motel or behind a dumpster and fears and anxieties that children shouldn't have to carry. But, um, so I waited, I didn't go out. I waited at home by the phone cause dad always calls, you know? And when he finally called about nine fifteen, nine twenty that night, I said, daddy, you're, you're back out there, aren't you? And he said, yeah, honey. And it's worse than ever. And I said, Dad, if you can just stay alive for a few more years, I'll, I'll get an apartment. I'll take care of you. And um, that night after that phone call, my dad got on his knees in my grandma's living room and he said the alcoholic prayer, God help me. And that's my dad's sobriety day. My dad died in 2019 with 30 years of sobriety and a tremendous love for this program. Um, so I'm 25. He's sober. What is that? Seven years at that time, and I called him, and I said, Dad, I think I got what you got. You know, people are mad. Uh, talking about divorce, uh, you know, all this stuff. So my dad asked me to come see him, and I did. And uh, I thought, finally, somebody's going to listen about how, you know, crappy everybody's been to me. And um, But Dad told me about you. He told me about you. He told me about him. My dad 12-stepped me. Um, and he said, would you like to go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting with me? And I said, I, I had nothing else to do, you know. That was in 1995, and I fell in love with AA. I just fell in love with you all. And I love the laughter. I love the music. I've never been a person who didn't like AA or didn't like going to AA or didn't like meetings. What I didn't like was this book and that work you talked about. I was like, that's unnecessary. And I went to meetings and didn't drink. Go to meetings and don't drink. Go to meetings and don't drink. And I did that. Um, I was 25 years old, and our book speaks to that. It talks about young people can often quit, you know, um, with little to no effort. Uh, but who'd want to? Um, but I did, and, and I quit. But what I didn't do is I didn't read this book, and I didn't work steps. I just, I had fellowship sobriety. And uh, uh, 
Louise talked about that the first few years of his sobriety, you know, just getting kind of irritable and miserable and not having worked the steps. And I did that. And three years sober, me and my husband had had two more kids. We'd moved further out. I couldn't get to my meetings, you know, like new meetings because they don't do things like you do it at your meetings. And I didn't go to meetings like my life depended on it. So I just quit going to meetings. And then I had this brilliant idea. God made weed. (laughs) And I like God. Fourth dimension. I decided I would be like, but this time I'm not going to bust the dishes. I'm not going to start fires. I'm not going to stab people. No, 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 no. I have a new plan. Page 31, right? Page 31. I hadn't read that yet. Uh, But the new plan is I'm going to be a hippie. Hippies are nonviolent, and I need to, you know, take that course. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna smoke weed, do some hallucinogenics, build a campfire. I'm, I grew a garden. I grew canned uh, green beans. I way too many. I didn't know how that worked, and they produce a lot. I canned green beans. Um, I, I tie dyed shirts, and me and the kids sat in the yard, and we, you know, listened to Joni Mitchell and John Prime. I'm gonna be a hippie. The problem with that was that when I smoke uh, the devil's lettuce, <laughs> I get thirsty. I get so thirsty. My mouth gets really dry. And uh, so I decided that I would drink just beer. Just beer, only on Fridays, never on Saturdays, definitely not Sundays, but wait unless it's football season, and then you can drink on Sunday because NFL. Um, but that's it, and that's all I'll do, except on Tuesdays, because they have Margarita Tuesdays at the taco place. So maybe I'll do that. You know how the story goes, right? Because I wasn't properly armed with the facts about this disease I suffer from. I was probably worried about the fellowship and how to chair a meeting and, you know, how to, whatever, make coffee. I could make coffee. I could set up coffee. Uh, but I wasn't properly armed about the facts about this progressive and fatal illness that I suffer from. And I wasn't given the solution. No, it, it's not that I wasn't getting, but they, they hung on the wall. <laughs> no one kept it a secret. I don't want you to think that. And they would read this thing in the beginning, and it was called How It Works. Right? I was just oblivious to all that. I thought that was for other people worse off than me. And they didn't, you know, people with more severe cases of alcoholism. Because at 25, I would hear things from the podium, and I would clutch my pearls, you know. Um, I want you to know that there was literally nothing that I heard from the podium in 1995 that didn't become part of my story by 2010. Um, This next 10 years that I was away from you, I can only tell you about progressive and fatal, progressive and fatal, um, the annihilation of all things worthwhile. The warped lives of blameless children. It affects all whose life touches the sufferer. You know, it was, ah, it was horrible. It was, um, but I, but I didn't go, oh, this is really crappy. I should go back to AA. No, my disease says it's going to get better. You're in a slump. Things aren't going your way now, but it's going to come Monday. 
You're going to get this all together. You're going to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You're going to get a job. You know, you know, you'll, you'll buy a car. You can live in the car um, until you can get an apartment. And then once you get an apartment, you're going to call those kids. Those kids who lay awake at night thinking maybe their mom is dead. Those kids who call the hospital in the morgue every time the news reports, white woman found. You're going to do better, Amy. You're going to do better. You're going to start on Monday. Come Monday. Come next week. But for now, since it's only Thursday, we should drink. Right? Um, I was unemployable. I did what I, I don't, I say women, you are decent and good women. I know in Texas you don't have prostitution, but in Kentucky, <laughs> and I was so amazed by this, right? Cause I wasn't raised like in that kind of environment, but I ended up in these sort of places and, um, they said, you know, you can sell favors. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I've been giving this away since junior high. <laughs> People pay for this? Call them immediately. Get them over here right now. You know, I don't have a car. Um, so I, I turned to the lucrative uh, work of prostitution, and uh, that's how I drank every day. That's how I drank every day. And I was 37 years old, and if I did not have a drink in me by 10, 10.30, I would start with tremors. Anxiety, irritability, diarrhea, the shakes, what we call delirium tremors. Um, and I intuitively knew that I needed to drink. And I remember thinking back, I remember the first time my hand shook and I looked down and I thought, holy crap. And uh, I remember being in AA and the drunks, the street drunks would come in and the, the old timers would give them half a cup of coffee, you know, so they didn't spill it on their neighbors. And I thought, oh, that's you. That's you. I feel just like Bill did on page six. The terror, remorse, and horror of the next morning were unforgettable. Right? I dared not cross the street. An all-night joint will supply what I need. Two bottles of gin and oblivion. And that became my cycle. And that's how I lived. And that was every day. Um... In 2007, I started coming to your meetings, and I thought, okay, I'll go back to AA. Um, but I I came to your meetings. I drank your coffee. I held your hand. We said the prayer, and then I would still drink. I was like, what is going on? In 1995, I came to your meetings. I drank your coffee. I held your hand. We said the prayer, and I didn't drink. Why isn't that combination working now? Well, what's, what am I doing wrong? Are you making the coffee different? What's happening? Like, I don't understand. It's not working. AA's not working. But I still don't know about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm still in the delusion that you go to meetings, you hold hands, you drink the coffee, you say the prayer, you don't drink. You go to the next meeting, you go to the next meeting. Sometimes you go to the meeting after the meeting or the parking lot meeting. Sometimes they take you out for ice cream. That's really nice. Every now and then there's a dance. 
You know, that's what I thought we were supposed to be doing. And, and I, I loved, um, the, the old timers planner is talking about your brain being scrambled. I couldn't put things together by this point. You know, I've been in so many, I took a lot of hits to the head, you know, um, not that I wasn't giving them out. I don't want you to think that I was doing a, my four stuff and I was talking about all this violence and, you know, the abuse and all that. And my sponsor was like, didn't you say you're very violent when you drink? And I'm like, well, yeah. She's like, do you think any of these men were defending themselves? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I'll climb you like a spider monkey and I'm carrying a knife. Like, you have to get me off you. Um, she wasn't wrong, you know. And so you need a good sponsor to, <laughs> to help you look at that four stuff differently. Um, so I did that. I bounced in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I just want to say, you know... Um, if you're like me and you just bounce in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous, um, or you've sat here and watched us bounce in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, from the bottom of my heart, um, thank you for clapping every time I got a white chip. Thank you for saying, hey, Amy, it's good to see you. Did you get a cookie? You can sit with us. If you had shook your finger, if you had looked at me in disgust, if you had said, maybe this won't work for you, I would be dead. But every time I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, you welcomed me. You didn't care if it was my 15th white chip that month. And even if you thought, for Christ's sake, lady, you didn't show me. You did say things like, have you considered working the steps? <laughs> Do you have one of these? Yeah. Um, and if you're the, you know, the keep coming back, it, it, it matters. And if, if, if you are, I keep coming back, um, come all the way in and sit all the way down. Come all the way in and sit all the way down. Because until I came all the way in and I sat all the way down, I I never could experience the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, March 6, 2010, my dad picked me up. He took me to that homeless shelter. He said, go in and see if they'll help you. I think you're going to die. I got, they gave me one of these books. Um, I was in that program a year. I lived there a year. I lived in a homeless shelter for a year um, while I just did AA while well, I studied, we had big book studies and we would go to AA meetings and, you know, and I got a sponsor and I don't think she liked me. She was short. She was a little bit militant. She had about two and a half years of sobriety, but uh, Clancy used to talk about the Teflon that covers the alcoholic. There's a screw, uh, a wrench for every nut. You know, and I was coming off the streets. And if you had been really nice to me, I would have stole your car. So it was good because um, I'm insane, you know, but uh, I could hear Rhonda. I could hear her. She talked hard and she wasn't that long off the street either. And I could hear her. And she read this book to me and she was properly armed with facts about this disease, what it's going to do to you. And she took me through this book and she took me through those steps. And we got on our knees and we prayed a, a third step. And we sat down and did a fourth step. And, you know, just to show some of the insanity on my fourth step, I had my mother-in-law, because of course she had ruined my marriage, as mother-in-laws do. <laughs> oh. She said, you don't see where you harmed this woman? I said, I gave her beautiful children by all her sons. 
She never never treated me well. (laughs) She's like, she pushed that paper back, you know. We're just going to stop and take a deep breath right now. I was like, oh, you know. Um, I had 145 people on my harms list. You know, I had my cousin's baby because I wasn't at the birthday party. She's like, did they have the birthday party? I said, yes, but I wasn't there. She's like, they're glad you didn't harm them. (laughs) Take them off. She said, you're not that important. You're just not that important that you harmed 145 people. You know, we started taking people off there. So like, they were glad you, you didn't come. Nobody wanted you there. No harm done. Um, I thought that I had to go out and, and make amends to the men I had robbed and, you know, their wives. <laughs> it's just insane stuff. You need a sponsor. Get a sponsor. Read the book. Get a sponsor. You know, um, and... I didn't know what to do about those kids. I didn't know what to do about that. And uh, she said, you know what those kids have not seen from you? And I said, what? And she said, consistency. You've never been consistent. She said, what you're going to do is every Thursday, you're going to mail each of them a letter. And it's not going to be a letter about you. Nobody cares about you. Stop thinking about you. It's going to be about them. How are you? I love you. I hope school was well. Are you still playing soccer? It's not going to be, oh, mommy loves you. and Mommy's so sorry. No. Enough out of you. You're going to write a letter every Thursday, and you're going to put it in the mailbox to each of those kids, and it's going to be about them. And I started doing that. And every Thursday, I would send off these four letters from the homeless shelter. <laughs> every Thursday. And about two months later, about eight letters later, they did mail call. And they called my name. And two of those kids had written me back. And that's how it started, with Consistency. Consistency. And I, you know, they, they're mad they don't get letters on Thursday anymore, but, <laughs> but I did that for a long time with them, you know. Um, and so I started to build this relationship with my kids again. Um, I parented from guilt. I parented from fear. I parented ineffectively. Many, many times. Thank God for strong, sober women who had experience and they taught me how to parent from love. I have learned that anything I do that doesn't come from a place of love is not going to be effective. It is actually probably going to create harms <laughs> somewhere. But if I can center and focus and be, I love Dr. Bob's letter of humility that he kept on his desk and he talks about that quiet place inside you uh, I think Barb one of the uh, on the long timers panel said I looked for God everywhere and you told me he was in me right so step 11 right it works it really does that's step 11 that's that's where that comes from right and and it's talking about prayer and meditation 
It's talking about how these things work. I love that it says the alcoholic is undisciplined. Back home, you know, I'm from the hood, and we all yell, period. <laughs> After that, alcoholic is undisciplined, period. Because uh, <laughs> we are. But it says we allow God to, uh, to discipline us in this way we've outlined, you know, and that's what 86 and 87 and talks about how we're going to do this, how we're going to align ourselves with God. And that part they read, you know, I have a new employer, right? And being all powerful, right? And, and this is where my energy and my power, and this is, so how, but how am I going to build that relationship? You know, um, Rhonda was an incredible sponsor and she helped me so much, but she got away from program. And she got into gossiping and what this person's in. And I could just tell the conversation was different. And ultimately, she drank again. I thank God she was at her post when I needed her. But at that time, I switched ponsors. Um, I used to give the message the same way it was given to me. Um, and my home group, Lambton, lovingly calls that 12-stomping women. <laughs> Instead of 12-stepping them. <laughs> you want to live or you want to die? What's your choice to be? Book tells me on to the other one. You know, it was nuts. And uh, so I got with Miss Delinda, and she was like, why are you yelling at people? <laughs> so they can hear the truth. You know? <laughs> she said, sweetheart, um, the truth stands all by itself quietly. It doesn't have to be yelled. She said, your job is to give them the information. What they do with that information is between them and God. Um, I still carried a lot of rage throughout my sobriety. That didn't go away. Uh, six and seven, I did have a spiritual experience, and I thought, oh, I'm fixed. But it turns out I wasn't. The anger and rage still lived. And I was really spiritual until you made me mad. <laughs> uh but if you just wouldn't do that, I was a spiritual giant. Uh, but then I would go into these rages that still existed within me. And um, I was five years sober, and I kicked in my neighbor's door, literally, not figuratively, like literally kicked in their door, threatened to kill everyone inside. Um, then walked back home. My husband was mowing the grass. He just quietly stopped, walked to the neighbors, and was like, I see you've met my wife. <laughs> He said, the thing is, I don't know what she's going to do either. Um, I called my sponsor after, you know, because they, she's not as, she's not as quick to see my side as I like. And I said, Delinda, when am I going to stop doing this? When am I going to stop with this rage and this anger and these outbursts? And what's wrong with me? And why can't I apply these principles? Why do I miss the pause? The pause when agitated or doubtful, I just shoot right past it every time. Like I pause after I don't pause before. Like, and she said, honey, when you work all the steps and I said, Oh, excuse me, ma'am. I, I sponsor women. I lead big books. I'm an H and I. I have worked all the steps. And she said the second half of 11. Ooh. Mm. I'm really good at prayer. Meditation? Ugh. She said, I want you to get out the 12 and 12, and I want you to read step 11. And I did, and it was amazing. Like so much of our literature, how did they know? 
all the reasons we avoid meditation. We put it off. We make excuses. She said, you, you cannot have a relationship with somebody when you're the only guy talking. You know, you gotta listen sometimes. When you go on a date with somebody, you know, if you want to build a relationship, a friendship, a sponsorship, or whatever, you talk, they talk, you talk, they talk. You spend time together. You spend time together. And see, my prayers were real quick while I brush my teeth or drive into work or on my knees at night. But how long does that take? Spending time in meditation, spending time in building a relationship with my higher power. The second half of 11. I have ADHD, so I used to like use, well, you know, I got the ADHD. I can't think. I don't say that. She was like, I don't care. I don't care. You're going to try. And so I Googled on YouTube and I would do two minute guided meditation. And I just sit there. I was painful. So painful. Oh, it's over. Okay, thank God. Jesus. I do that for a couple weeks. Every now and then I'd sit, I'd kind of start relaxing. And then I remember I got up to a five-minute meditation. I'm like, I'm doing big things. Watch out, Gandhi. Coming for your spot. I'm levitating, you know. And and I love the ones you can put on sleep meditations because you're supposed to fall asleep. It's perfect. Like I did a meditation, you know. But this effort that I was putting into it, it changed everything. It changed everything. It works. It really does. You know, and it doesn't matter if you're bad at it. Good. We're all bad at it. We practice, right? We continue to seek. We try to spend time with our creator, with our higher power, whatever that looks like for you. Just give him, her, it, the universe, some time. The most precious thing you have to give anyone is your time. And when I spend time in prayer and meditation, I'm a better human being. I'm easier to get along with. Miraculously, you seem like better people too (laughs) when I spend time in prayer and meditation. It's incredible. It's an incredible thing. Um, I do want to say a couple weeks ago, I got fired from a very fancy job and only in AA, you know, I called my friend Judith. I'm like, I just got fired from corporate America. She's like, Awesome! That's wonderful! (laughs) Now you can do whatever God has for you to do. I said, you're right. The very next day, my sweet mother broke her ankle and needed 24-hour care and someone to stay with her. I said, look at that. Turns out I'm available. (laughs) And I've gotten to spend the last few weeks with my beautiful mother, You know, we got to bury my father like we do in AA, and it was tremendous and amazing, and I grieve, and I miss him. But, man, what a beautiful life. You know, the goal is to die sober, right? That's the deal. And I tell you what, uh, me and Dad had a real good time. We owe it all to you all. You know, um, there's so many promises in the book, and I, I don't know where you are in your journey Um, But when I was living in the homeless shelter, I love to drop that in corporate America, too. When I lived in a homeless shelter, (laughs) when I was homeless, you know, um, 
when I prostituted. Maybe that's why they fired. I don't know. No, that's not. I just took it. Um, but I read this every night because um, I, I, I've been sold on a set of ideas um, and, and, and this book and this way of life, the design for living that works in fair weather and foul. But on page 100, uh, the first full paragraph, it says, both you and the new man must. It doesn't say if you have time. This is not a definite and valuable suggestion. It actually says you must. I like to tell my sponsees, underline that. Those are important words. Um, both you and the new man must walk day by day in the path of spiritual progress. If you persist, remarkable things will happen. Thank you all. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.